Play ball. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. If you've never listened before, this show touches on a lot of different topics. We often focus on analytics or defense, but we're always trying to view the game in a different way. We try to be entertaining as well. We hope that you're doing well wherever you are and that this show can provide a respite from all the things that you're dealing with related to coronavirus. No monologue, we go right to our guests. We've spent the last few weeks looking at some of the new baseball books that are out now and how they apply to the different things that we like to talk about. The latest is Future Value, the battle for baseball soul and how teams will find the next superstar. For those of you interested in scouting and player evaluation, this is a great book. It's the ultimate guide to where the industry stands in 2020. It's by Eric Longenhagen of Fangraphs and Kylie McDaniel of ESPN. Eric, by the way, a Baseball Info Solutions alum. First question, what do you want people to get out of the book? I guess we want people to see kind of what the state of the industry is like at this point where, where scouting is at now, a few decades after it was really examined in, in Moneyball, uh, and try to see where we've anticipated it might head over the next five, 10 years in player evaluation and development in the five or so years leading up to us writing this book, it's, it's, things have changed pretty considerably uh, about what teams understand about what works, uh, how they go about evaluating it with the incorporation of technology, how it's implemented on the field, um, you know, what kind of people you hire to to coach and develop players who can communicate with them in a way that's going to get the players to buy in while that individual also understands the data that's driving what you're trying to get the player to do. And uh, so we try to capture as much of that as we can in the book and talk about this, you know, the push pull of scouting and uh, in-person and data and also like the financial aspects of it too. Um, You know, as we've seen throughout baseball, Money drives decision-making, um, and I think that's starting to creep into the way teams structure scouting departments and go about evaluating players. Broadly speaking, we hit a lot of different things, which makes the sort of pitch of like the elevator pitch of the book a little difficult. Um, but I think, broadly speaking, if you look at, I want to understand numbers, we got plenty for you. I want to understand how to scout or how scouting is done. We got plenty for you. I want to learn how to scout. I want to get a job in a front office. I'm a player that wants to get recruited and understand what my coaches are looking at. Like we kind of hit all those bases because it sort of becomes one of those comprehensive, here's where we stand. And so we end up hitting a lot of bases, almost like an encyclopedia of sorts of like what's going on in baseball right now. I read a dollar sign on the muscle probably 20, 25 years ago. Uh, what was that a book that influenced you with regards to doing this kind of book? What, what books kind of influenced you along the way? Certainly that one uh, is a shining example of, uh, it's just an incredible depiction of scouting at that point in time. Uh, and I love dollar sign on the muscle and anybody listening to this, if you can find a copy somehow, um, you should go about doing that. I know it was re-released. I think the BP folks, while Parks was the, um, head, head prospect writer at, at BP re-released that. So go looking for dollar sign on the muscle for sure. Uh, another BP book, extra innings, uh, which is a book of essays, has some stuff that combs over the, the scouting processes uh, as well in a couple of those essays. Though That was uh, an excellent thing. That is a book that I recommend to young people who are looking to better understand how some of the stuff on the scouting side works as well. So yeah, Extra Innings Part 2, I think Stephen Goldman edited that. 
um, and Dollar Sign of the Muscle are two great books about scouting and player evaluation. Like, you know, in addition to Moneyball and books that other people are probably familiar with uh, that, yes, highly, highly recommend. That's Eric Longenhagen with Kylie McDaniel. I'm Mark Simon interviewing them here on this podcast. How much uh, of the book is personal experience versus how much of it uh, were you able to uh, get people to kind of open up? Because uh, I know a lot of people that are uh, that are in the industry are, are pretty tight lipped when it comes to talking about it. Yeah, it was hard to it was hard to balance. Um, you know, there were some things even late going back through people's quotes, uh, making sure that people who were quoted in the book came off the way that they, they wanted to in a way that their org was not going to be upset about. There was a balance to strike. There are certainly stories, both personal and uh, anecdotes from people that we know who don't belong in the book because they are, you know, compromising in some way. Um, there are countless stories from people who, you know, that are just aren't in the book. Everybody who's been working in baseball, no matter if you're a scout or whatever, uh, if you've been doing it long enough, you have got some interesting tales to tell. Uh, we could probably do a whole series of books that are just war stories from scouts. But yeah, it's it's a good mix. Kylie's got more in office experience with teams than I do. I've I've typically been on the uh, public side, whether it's you know working at BIS or or writing um, over the course of my twelve years in baseball. Uh, so it's, you know, it was a different mix for the two of us, but it's, uh, but yeah, it's definitely a mix and we had to kind of curate what was, what was in the book for the sake of everyone's jobs involved. From the perspective of the, the sort of, you know, the firsthand stories from scouting directors and VPs and guys like that, um, and maybe half of those stories, and there's, I don't know, probably a couple dozen of them in there, um, were stories that like one of us already knew and we just wanted to get it on the record and let them tell the story. Or we'd heard, you know, this guy told someone we know who passed it along to us. Hey, we should call that guy. I heard he's got good stories. But there's like a good, you know, maybe half of the stories, maybe like, you know, 30, 40%. Um, that are just things we didn't know. And I know I had a couple calls where I'd call a guy that's been scouting for 30 years and be like, hey, do you have any crazy stories about when you were trying to like surreptitiously scout a guy and not be seen? And one of the stories in the book is about a guy who uh, ran into, it was, uh, they were watching Scott Olson as a high school player in Illinois. And there were, they knew that there were two or three teams that were on him and they were trying to not be seen at his games in case one of the non, you know, the other 26 teams were there. And one of the guys got to the game, saw the other guy, he knew it was on him. And they couldn't find the third guy, but they knew he was there and they find him hiding in the bushes later. <laughs> and I was like, you know, those are the kind of stories where you know everyone's got a story about that sort of topic if they've been in the game for 30 years, but you don't necessarily know all of them. I had a guy tell me, uh, hey, you should call Scout X because he taught Rosie O'Donnell and Madonna and all the girls uh, in a league of their own how to play baseball. He's got stories about that. And we just ultimately couldn't, like, it didn't make sense to fit in a book, but there's also some weird stuff that people have done like that over the course of their lives. Um, you work in baseball long enough, stuff like that. There's nothing to do with scouting. Um, but yeah, like I want to hear about what it was like to try to teach <laughs> Madonna in the nineties how to like swing a bat. It sounds pretty good. So uh, there was another one too, that I actually think I, I just read the JT Romuto uh, discovery story was an interesting one. Yeah. That was one that a lot of people have brought up. Um, that was also one I didn't know. I knew he was not a, you know, well-known showcase sort of guy. And in, uh, in talking to Stan Meek, who you know, I reached out to because he had Giancarlo Stanton, Jose Fernandez, Christian Yelich, you know, he had all kinds of guys under his belt. And I asked him that sort of generic question, like, hey, is there a crazy story about, 
a guy that was like under the radar, you were trying not to be seen, like something along those lines. He goes, oh yeah, the next one I was going to tell you of Real Muto, he's a perfect example. And the without spoiling the whole story, he was an example of, uh, he lived 20 minutes from the guy, b- barely had heard the name, had seen him play football on TV, uh, told the area scout working his home area to check him out. And he went out and in one game saw a guy that had never caught before catch and then hit a home run and then show his speed. And his best reaction to not tip off to other teams uh, or to the kid that they were super into him was to just never go back. And he was like, we don't need to go see him five more times. I saw it all, which obviously for teams these days that are you know, heavily model uh, in terms of how they do drafting, they want as much information as possible. And finding out about a guy in March means you got to run people in there every game and get as much information as you can. But obviously the more traditional old school scout is going to say, we don't even want the kid or his you know, possible agent that he gets one day knowing that we like him because then he's going to force us to take him too high, uh, which is obviously the totally opposite reaction to it, um, which doesn't happen very much now, obviously, and guys are much easier to discover. And this wasn't that long ago, but it still happens every now and then. feels like gamesmanship is a big part of this. I think it's less a part of it now than it used to be. So many of the changes that have occurred recently uh, that require teams to share data uh, on the amateur side or that um, pool players together on the showcase circuits, the access that teams have to video that players themselves can generate with their cell phones means that it's harder for someone not to be known about if they are talented in some way. Chances are teams are going to have a look at you uh, just by virtue of the fact that seeing someone on on tape or live is so much easier now than it used to be. There's not a whole lot of uh, turning over rocks in rural Mississippi uh, to find someone who other teams aren't totally aware of. I think at this point, it's 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 rare for someone to not be known about by all 30 teams just because of everyone's access to information now. There was a uh, there's a high school player in this past year's draft uh, that I got tipped off to that was in the Deep South that was that sort of example of the player that was under the radar. A bunch of teams didn't know about him, but he had top couple round potential. And I found out about him when it sounded like eight or ten teams knew about him. And it was like, I don't know, six weeks before the draft. And we were at the spot where we thought, oh, this could be a part of the book. We sort of know the kid, sort of know the agent. We know some of the teams that are into him. There's a good chance that they, you know, he's like a surprise second or third round pick that like he gets picked and everyone online is like, we don't know who this is. Uh, And then it turned out there was this really late all-star game, like a week before the draft that he went to. And so all 30 teams got their report in. He was a known name. He started popping up on all the other, um, you know, consensus rankings online. And then he also didn't look that great down the stretch, the school that he was going to go to. Uh, you know, change his scholarship percentage and all that sort of thing. And so it ended up not working out. I don't think he was even drafted, um, but he'll probably be a big prospect three years from now. But we thought we might have run into something like that JT Real Muto sort of player uh, where we sort of lucked out that I was tipped off when only a couple teams knew about him. But, you know, even in those circumstances, there's a handful of guys like that every year. And most of them end up being, um, you know, don't turn into a prospect or end up getting kicked to college or, you know, fall apart down the stretch. Like there's still so many different ways that when it looks like you might have this guy two months before the draft, it still doesn't end up being anything. That player in particular, it was easy to see what teams knew about him because you find the player's social media and look through who's following him. And you can see the scouts from teams like the team personnel who are monitoring the kid's activity on social media. Like it's pretty easy to see who's on a kid like that uh, and know 
even in this rare occasion, uh, what percentage of the league is on him to some degree. So with that in mind, when it comes to like sophistication, what's the variance team to team when it comes to scouting and player evaluation? Is there a big gap, 1 to 5, 5 to 15, 15 to 30, 1 to 30? Uh, I would say there's a I, – I get the impression, and I've actually gotten uh, this a, a question like this um, from, say, we'll say more um, – fan-based podcasts uh, or that are, you know, prospect podcasts of a certain team. And I think they want to skip to the end and be like, oh, back when the book Moneyball came out, teams were very all over the place. And now they're all kind of the same thing. It's sort of silly to suggest that there's like big variance. And and I think the variance is actually bigger than the casual fan would think. I think the casual fan thinks everybody has a robust analytics department. Everyone has scouts that they listen to. Everyone has a model and they, you know, encourage both things. And it's really not as homogenous as people may think there. I mean, there was a team that I've mentioned, not who the team is, but I've mentioned this anecdote before that last year I ran into a high ranking scout for a team who is not just like some random scout. Like he is one of the higher ranking people in the room. And he joked that they're, uh, their draft room is analytics, and I talked to some people in that draft room, and they're like, "Yeah, that's not incorrect." Um, and that's like obviously one approach. There are teams that we start to reference in the book that we think essentially let their model make their picks for them, and it, like there is no single decision maker. It's like all just the you know group approach, um, which is just sort of the other end on the progressive end of things. So obviously, from one to thirty, there's a huge gap. It's like almost some teams are drafting how most teams will draft fifteen years from now. And there's a couple teams drafting how teams did 15 years ago. Uh, but I would say once you get outside of those sort of top five, bottom five, from like six to 25 or so, I think it's pretty similar and will change year to year that one team could be sixth one year and then be 15th one year when it comes to sort of traditional versus progressive. But there are still some extremes on the polls. And I also think that there is some merit to doing something that seems sort of crazy on either end. Uh, in terms of traditional versus progressive, if no one else is doing it. If there's only two teams that are doing the very traditional, very old school approach, there is now inherently value in that approach, even if it doesn't seem to be as sort of rigorous, um, you know, logically speaking. I love the chart on page 323. Uh, you've got like a success failure is the vertical, uh, and then progressive traditional is the uh, horizontal axis. Uh, and I think it's tough to explain charts on the internet, but this is uh, definitely my favorite chart uh, among the many uh, good ones that are in this book. Uh, can you uh, explain the four buckets that you put teams into? Uh, yeah, so this this chart was Kylie's idea pretty early on. Kylie, what um, what publication is it that you were reading where you saw a chart like this? This was this was sort of your your brainchild. Yeah, there's something in, uh, I think it's New York Magazine, where they do the, like, highbrow, lowbrow, um, I think it's, like, sort of, you know, positive, positive, negative, like, we like it, we dislike it, and then highbrow, lowbrow, as, like, the four quadrants, and it seemed like an interesting way that they had come up with to talk about things in terms of culture, like, oh, this is a lowbrow thing we don't like, a highbrow thing we do like, and all the things in between, and I was trying to figure out a way to do this for baseball at the same time that we were... Um, talking about like how do we for you know a huge fan of the Kansas City Royals reading this book there may not be a ton of things that are specifically for them how do we come up with something that you know gives the Royals fan what he wants and so we want to do like a version of the Royals are you know very progressive in this way and more traditional in this way like a sort of a quick rundown I was like how can we make this more graphical and then I realized okay we need to figure out what the x and y axes are um, but that 
this concept of sort of doing it on a matrix made some sense. And we, we mentioned in there that it's a little tricky to do this because for every team that is super progressive in the draft room, that same team could be more traditional when it comes to player development or some other department. And sometimes that is a function of, you know, they're, they're trying to rebuild, so they're going to be rebuilding and trading good players for, you know, good big leaguers for, you know, young players. And so uh, there's sort of different success cycles and also different people running each department. Um, and so we're sort of averaging those things together and maybe taking the aggregate of their sort of mentality um, of how they approach each department. Uh, and then obviously success and failure is tough because, like, you know, Baltimore just got a new GM. They're in the middle of rebuilding. We don't really, they're not trying to be good on the big league team in that way. They're not spending a lot of money. They just had their first draft. Uh, you can't really say if they're succeeding or failing, but have we liked the process? Do we like the kind of people they've hired? How big their departments are? Do we like the sort of players they've been targeting? Like you sort of look more at the process, whereas for you know teams like Mike Rizzo with the Nationals, they've been doing something close to the same thing for a long time. You can kind of look a little more at results at that point and then maybe round up or down based on if they've been making adjustments. Um, so it's, it's tricky to sort of distill all these different little pieces of info down that we have textually in this, you know, this team by team area. Uh, but we try to at least put them in, like you're saying, in the buckets and for the places where we don't have a super strong opinion or track record to judge off of, we just stick them, you know, near the middle of the graph, just sort of assume everyone is exactly in the middle if we don't have any information. And it's interesting that you brought up this chart, Mark, because this is, you're the second person who proactively just like, yeah, this, let's talk about this specific thing. Either of the many charts in the book, uh, this is the one that you gravitated toward. And it is a thing that is influenced by seemingly small stuff, uh, like in the Arizona Fall League here last year, taking my high-speed camera to games and watching that the Tigers pitchers in the Fall League clearly were showing visual elements of like coherent modern pitch design, driveline philosophies, changed how we looked at that org from a player development progressive standpoint like it was clear to us after fall league that uh in fact the tigers are much more progressive uh and thoughtful and and similar to teams like houston and the dodgers when it comes to developing pitchers repertoires uh than we had previously assumed and so it is all sorts of, there are all sorts of avenues that feed into the way we put teams on that uh those continuum just to articulate, uh, I won't give away the whole chart, but just to articulate what the, the two extreme ends in terms of progressive uh, with analytics, success to failure, uh, you have the Astros, the Rays, the Twins, the Brewers, the Indians, and then in, in the fine-tuning, the formula uh, section, the Orioles. Uh, and on the other side, the traditional scouting teams, one team is in your street smart quadrant, the Nationals, and then three teams that are on heavy on the traditional scouting side, the Marlins, the Rockies, and the Royals are in what you call the momentum-seeking uh, quadrant, which I thought was an interesting way to put it. I want to I move on to, to a different topic because I had a couple other topics that I wanted to cover. Uh, I have a question about evaluating defense and the challenges of trying to evaluate defensive play. Most of what I've read so far, and I'm about a third of the way through your book, uh, is about evaluating uh, hitting uh, and some uh, evaluating pitching. Uh, how tricky is it to evaluate defense both at the amateur and the professional level below the major league level? Yeah, so there is a section in the book, Mark, that I think you're going to like called Defense and Reductionism, where we attempt to 
to break defense down into component parts to try to better understand it, especially on the infield. Because as things have changed over the last five, 10 years with defensive positioning improving, uh, what skills can actually fit at the various positions uh, has changed. How much lateral range you need on the infield now is different than it was 15 years ago when nobody was shifting uh, and, you know, just spray charts in general. And we see players referencing charts on their, the bill of their cap or in their pockets pretty constantly now at all levels of baseball to know where they have to stand for a particular batter and a particular count, or we've seen it change depending on who's on the mound based on whether the pitcher wants it or not, or how hard the pitcher throws. Um, and so, yeah, uh, it is difficult breaking it up into component parts, especially on the infield footwork, actions, hands, arm strength, arm utility. Uh, these are things that I think are, are helpful in terms of determining who not only is good at what, but who can feasibly fit where, uh, I think that you also have the way like Tampa Bay does things where they are more inclined to play four outfielders for certain hitters, kick an infielder out there. Um, just some of the amorphous defensive positioning that we see in the big leagues in general means that we are trending towards something that looks like positionless baseball or where the positions as we have them currently defined may be obsolete uh, in the next handful of years or require a, a pretty serious overhaul in terminology in the way we describe them. I think uh, that, yes, like trying to better understand what individual athletic traits enable someone to play shortstop or second base or third base and trying to change the way we think about those. Like what, what makes Max Muncy so able to play second base, despite the fact that he has a body that would typically fit at first base only maybe third base or catcher, uh, in baseball 15, 20 years ago, that guy's a perfectly competent defensive second baseman because his actions around the bag, his hands are just so good. Uh, and the same is true of guys like Mike Moustakis. And so the way we're looking at bodies and who can play where, who fits where in the defensive spectrum is certainly changing. And, and there are aspects of that in the book. If you were going to tell a fan to watch one thing uh, as it relates to defense, uh, when a player first comes up, what would you tell them to watch? The hands, the exchange. Uh, can you turn the baseball around? Uh, you know, what is those little uh, seemingly infinitesimal moments between when a player receives the baseball and either applies a tag or gets rid of the baseball? Those are often the difference between getting someone out and not. Um, and they happen like literally in the blink of an eye. And I think that that's uh, as lateral range becomes less important things like that become uh, more important. So that is now the, the little granular things that, um, you know, they kind of depend on your opportunity to see that particular uh, thing for a player. So um, those are the things that I'm, that I'm looking for from my big leaguers now. It's how good are your hands and actions? Uh, how quickly can you get the ball over the first base? Yeah, and I would say that uh, I remember when I was starting out, especially um, scouting, uh, the, the toughest position for me to evaluate was catcher. And so I was asking some former professional catchers, what do you look for? And they were like, well, the most important thing is between the ears, which is speaking all the, you know, the mental parts of uh, being a catcher. But they're like, the physical parts, it's basically just feet and hands. Like, is he in position? Is he quick on his feet? Is his exchange quick? Does he receive the ball? Like, it all just comes down to just the feet and hands, really. 
And I think you can sort of reduce uh, defense in general to that. Uh, obviously, infielders, it's a little more first step and footwork along with, uh, you know, how they how they receive the ball as a fielder and then how they get rid of it. And then in the outfield, I think it's a lot of sort of first step um, stuff is really important, um, whereas the, you know, the top speed recovery speed is a little less important, unless it's center field specifically. Um, so, it, I don't know, it sounds very simple to just explain it like that. It's sort of how, like, you know, putting is speed and direction. It's like, well, yeah, it's more than that, but also it's not really any more than that. Um, but I think feet and hands ends up being almost all of it. And at certain positions, it might be only feet or only hands uh, or overwhelmingly one versus the other. One of the things that was interesting in the first hundred pages of the book too, and this goes back to the real Muto topic, uh, was that the idea of makeup, uh, that if, if you found someone who was willing to catch, that that said a lot. Uh, just going back to what you were saying about catchers, that that says a lot about the kid and the person. Uh, and I was wondering if you could expand on that. Yeah, you just take an absolute beating back there. Uh, you know, you the padding that you have only covers a certain amount of your anatomy. Catchers' forearms and biceps and thighs take an ungodly beating from balls in the dirt and foul balls that are ricocheting off of their uh, their bodies. And there are a lot of players who start their careers there, who or who uh, maybe would only profile were they to go back there and they have perhaps the physical tools to do so who just have zero interest in doing it. Uh, and like, that's okay. You know, like look at Tommy Joseph's career. If, if you were concussed a half dozen times uh, and that more or less wrecked your career, like that's, that's a pretty horrible thing. Uh, I don't blame people for not wanting to do it, but it does take a certain type of individual, someone who's uh, tough, perhaps a little bit reckless uh, to go about it. And, Makeup is sort of a vague term, and so the willingness to, to do that, that's sort of uh, like baseball martyrdom, uh, is certainly a thing that, um, that scouts like because it means that, uh, that that player's got a chance, a better chance of profiling as an everyday player because the offensive bar at catcher is so low. And, and it's also one of those things that I think uh, if you look at the just the body type and the general sort of feet and hands thing I mentioned before, uh, it comes up a lot at the summer showcase level because your scouts are sort of first bearing down on kids for the first time there from sort of June to August is where most of the events are. And a lot of high-level scouts are seeing these guys for the first time, and that's when a lot of times guys that you may have seen as underclassmen at other events and just sort of, you know, mark that guy on your program as, yeah, that's a guy to keep track of. Like, he's, you know, he'll be a junior this year. Um, but I know like with Michael Chavis, when he was in high school, obviously now with the uh, Red Sox playing, we'll say first and second base, but he played shortstop in high school. He still had that same frame and had the plus arm and was very quick, was actually a plus runner at that point. And so at one of those showcases, all the scouts pulled him aside one morning before everything started and said, hey, let's try it behind the plate. And they tried it, and it just didn't work. Like, his arm wasn't plus. Uh, you obviously have to change your arm stroke a little bit to work behind the plate. And he was quick, but, like, the hands weren't great there, but the hands are fine in the infield. Um, and there's, like, certain guys that will throw 100 from the outfield, and then they throw 87 when you get them on the mound because just, like, the way the hips work and the way the body works, it just doesn't translate. It doesn't make them, like, a bad thrower. Uh, but a lot of times there's math you can do about it. if a guy, you know, throws a ball 95 from right field, that means he can probably throw 90 on the mound. Or if there's 90 in a pull-down driveline, he could probably throw 90 on the mound. Like, there's all kinds of, like, sort of adjustments you make there. And a lot of times you see a guy like Chavis or another guy that came up with Christian Arroyo, um, who a bunch of teams said, this guy's got the makeup, he's got the body, he's got the skills, everything should fit behind the plate. It's just that he wants to do it. And from what I've been told, he just doesn't want to do it. Which, as Eric said, if he's, like, wary of, I'm going to have that Tommy Joseph career, I don't want to go behind the plate. 
makes total sense. He's now in a spot where he's like not probably going to make the opening day roster, but is on the 40 man. He's burning options. Maybe he's more interested in that when it looks like that could be what gives him a career um, as, you know, a backup that can play the infield and, you know, be that sort of Dodgers type backup catcher. And that doesn't mean he doesn't have good makeup or that Michael Chavis suddenly doesn't have feel for the game because, um, you know, his skills didn't work behind the plate. Um, but there is like, there's a, a reductive way to say that guy looks like a catcher. Let's see if it works. And sometimes it does, but it usually doesn't. It's not really anybody's fault. It's just like catching is so weird and requires so many things that not many guys put back there. We've been all over the map uh, with this, uh, with our talk about this book so far, future value, the battle for baseball soul and how teams will find the next superstar. What advice uh, do each of you have for people who uh, are say even some of our employees that are aspiring to work uh, in front offices and player personnel in player evaluation uh, in terms of what they can do working essentially from a blank slate at the start. Learn a second language, probably Spanish. Uh, Take that, you know, everyone at this point, even where I come from in suburban Eastern Pennsylvania, they started teaching us Spanish in seventh grade. And uh, I'm not fluent in Spanish. I'm, I'm like a, a replacement level or below Spanish speaker. Um, so that's, that's not great. Um, so try to retain that stuff. If you're learning Spanish and uh, you're a young person and if you're not learning Spanish, then, uh, give it some consideration. Obviously the database management stuff is big. And I think video editing capabilities are a growing skill, um, that people will need or is a, is perhaps an avenue into working for a team. Yeah, I would say the uh, the two things we had always mentioned is what Eric said, basically SQL, which is the most common of the database languages, but there's R and some other ones like that. And Python, we mentioned um, that stuff in the book more specifically. Um, but Spanish and SQL are kind of the two things that we say. And obviously, neither of those necessarily comes into play as a scout. But I also think if we're trying to project 10, 15 years down the road, the uh, amount of like just goes to the game, writes what he thinks, and then the head scout gets to decide who they draft, like that pipeline is smaller and as it gets smaller it's the entry level guys that are going to get squeezed out and those jobs will be turned into more of a analyze video take video work in the office schedule the scouts that kind of thing and so having a more diverse skill set is probably a better place to be than just i'm going to out scout everyone i'm 22 and you got to trust me i'm better than everybody else because it's even whether that's true or not which it probably isn't <laughs> it's really hard to prove that until somebody believes you uh and it's very hard to prove it until somebody like wants to sit and, and watch a game with you and all of a sudden you just blow them away with your knowledge while you're still an undergrad it's just like not really a good idea to put all your eggs in that basket the other two things that I would throw in there, which Eric said sort of the video editing, I would say just getting comfortable with the, the Sony camera or the Edgertronic camera that everyone's using for high-speed video. That is the thing that is sort of replacing scouting in a lot of ways because if you can get a kid to go turn an Edgertronic on and catch a high school picture your team has never seen before, but you can't get a scout there, that's what they're going to do. And then they're going to take that video, chop it up, and then have that stand in for one or two scouting looks. And so being comfortable using that stuff or editing or otherwise handling it which you probably either need to work for a big-time college or a team to get that experience. And the other one would be having any sort of on-field experience, whether it's you know throwing BP or hitting fungos or just sort of being comfortable in that sort of environment. Because if you're trying to scratch and claw to get that entry-level job, even if you want to be a scout, being able to be the fourth coach at a GCL team and then go out and learn how to scout in the summers or write scouting reports on the players that you're coaching, um, those are the entry-level sort of skills that short of being 
the, you know, the most talented programmer anyone's ever seen, or your dad owns the team, or you got an MBA from Harvard. Like those are all great things. And those probably supersede the ones we're talking about. But for the people that don't have those things, those are the skills that make your resume stand out. And each team has hundreds of these resumes. So you kind of have to have a qualification you can put at the top of your resume to get yours picked out of the pile. Because just saying, I have an undergrad degree, no real experience, and I'll work real hard, that's what literally every single one says. And so you have to have something else. Eric, just give us uh, your take on your experience at BIS. Yeah, I. <laughs> so I'm from near where the BIS offices are. I drove by last time I was home in Pennsylvania. Uh, and saw that you guys had expanded into what used to be a bank down the street. Um, and the offices are currently in like the main offices that I worked in at the time, back when there were like, I don't know, 20 nodes, maybe max was a, a, an old movie theater that my grandparents used to, uh, to go to. So um, I had a special like local connection to the place. I really loved working there. Obviously uh, like, look, it's a, it's an internship job in baseball. So you're not going to be well paid. Uh, I lived, I grew up near there, so I didn't live uh, in like an apartment with a bunch of the other folks who were hired. Uh, but I loved my time there. I still keep in touch with some of the folks from my class. Um, and some of the most, the fondest work memories of my life occurred while I was working at uh, BIS standard internship caveats apply. I'm thankful for the opportunity that I was given there and um, what I learned along the way. And uh, yeah, so I, I certainly promote the internship opportunities that Sports Info Solutions uh, puts online because uh, I think it's it was a valuable experience for me and probably will continue to be for lots of other people. All right, this wraps up this episode of the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. For Eric Longenhagen and Kylie McDaniel and our producer, Justin Stein, I'm Mark Simon. Stay safe, stay well, and we'll catch you down the road. Check out our newest baseball book, The Fielding Bible, Volume 5, out March 1st. This book gives a comprehensive look at our new and improved defensive run save stat. It features essays on all 30 teams, research and studies on important topics, and stats and analysis you can't find anywhere else. That's Fielding Bible, Volume 5, available at actasports.com, that's A-C-T-A sports.com, or wherever you buy your books online. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.